right, let's open our Bibles, shall we? Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, we'll pick up the scriptures at verse 1, reading through verse 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his com- coming, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. The word of the Lord. I want you to take in that sound for just a moment as we think of this last passage in 2 Timothy. Now that sound is the type of sound that can bring a roaring crowd to a deafening silence. It's the sound of Olympic dreams being shattered right in the middle of a relay race. In fact, the sound is so dreadful to Olympic athletes that they literally practice for hundreds, even thousands of hours so that they will not hear that sound and suffer, of course, the dishonor of that sound in the middle of their event. And yet, we hear that sound going off Sunday after Sunday in local churches all across America. What does it look like as that sound is ringing off? Well, it looks like a pastor who's been in the pulpit of a church for 20 or 30 years and they've created no succession plan. It looks like Sunday school teachers and thrive leaders and disciplers who are really good at doing what they do, but they never train another person to do what they do so well. It sounds like and looks like parents who send their kids off to college, but they've really never spiritually invested in them. And so the child goes off and they are confronted for the first time in some kind of meaningful way by a college professor who has an ax to grind. It looks like believers who don't feel called to give generously to the work of the mission of the local church You know that place in Scripture where the Bible says we're responsible to gather there together, and it's the place where we are called to be equipped and to have our souls cared for? Right now, it looks like believers getting lost in the middle of this pandemic, no longer fellowshipping with their local church in any meaningful way, whether connecting online or in person. It looks like a mature Christian who's led their entire Christian life and never, ever once has discipled another believer. Now, 
the question I have for you this morning is, can you imagine what this sounds like to Jesus? You see, as we're looking at that passage in 2 Timothy, Paul has set out to write this letter because he dreads that sound too. He doesn't want to hear it. In fact, his main message to Timothy, and then by extension, us through Timothy, is this idea of never drop the baton. Run in such a way that you will hold on to this baton that you won't drop it. In fact, run in such a way that you'll be able to hand this baton off to another believer so that they too will carry the mission of the gospel with them. As Paul closes down this letter, he issues a strong charge to Timothy. And he begins that charge by grounding it in two theological realities. And you'll see those two realities in the first verse. He says, I I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, as you look at that verse, the first reality I want you to see is that we all live in the presence of God. All of us. There's a theological term in Latin that that I hope you will memorize. It's coram Deo. Coram Deo. One time the late theologian and preacher R.C. Sproul was asked, what's the big idea of the Christian faith? And without a thought of reply, he just quickly said, I know exactly what it is. The big idea of Christianity is quorum Deo. It's the essence of Christianity. He went on to explain what it is. He said the phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. So to live the Coram Deo life is to live one's entire life in God's presence, under God's authority for God's glory. Have you ever noticed how presence, an authority figure's presence can change things? in people's behavior and attitudes and actions. Do you remember what mom's presence did when you were off by yourself thinking you were getting away with mischief? I I don't know about you, but there was a couple of times where I thought I would sneak out in my backyard with some matches and start my own little fire. And, uh, you know, right when I'm in the middle of the activity, I, I turn around and I experience and see this hovering presence. And she didn't even have to say anything. She just had a stern look on her face. Her hands were on her hips. And she pointed in the general vicinity of my room. And I knew what I had to do. There was no talking back. I just went. Well, here's the thing as you think about Coram Deo. I think there's two ways to look at God's presence. In one way, you could, you could look at it like a hovering presence that God's always over you. He's just waiting for you to mess up, and then when he catches you, he'll let you know about it. But as you look at Paul's ministry, he doesn't present Coram Deo in that way. When you look at a passage, for example, like Colossians 1.10, He was praying for the church of Colossae, and he said, I pray that you would grow in knowledge and spiritual wisdom so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
So instead of thinking of God as this hovering presence, what if instead we thought of him as this loving heavenly father whom we want to please with our lives? That changes everything. I see spirit-filled believers starting their day off like this, thinking as they wake up, how can I please God today with my actions? And then laying their head down at night and closing in prayer and saying, God, were you proud of me today? It would change everything, wouldn't it? Everything if I lived with that kind of mindset. Now, the second reality that Paul brings to Timothy is he says that we're all going to answer for our lives to King Jesus. So God's presence is with us, but at the same time, Jesus is coming back. If you know anything of Jesus' ministry, you have to understand that his first coming was about the bringing of salvation. He died on the cross for our sins. He shed his, uh, his blood in our place. If we put our faith in him, then we will be saved. That's what the scriptures say. His second coming, though, is different. At his second coming, he will return as a righteous judge and a righteous king. He will set up his millennial kingdom and all believers will give an account for their lives at this coming. Now, if you take a look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's a passage that could easily be taken out of context. Paul's main point of that passage is directed at teachers. Their teaching ministry is built upon the foundation of Christ. And if I was to get up here and teach week after week anything but Christ, I'm not fulfilling my, my role and my responsibility. However, I would submit to you that you can apply the principle of 1 Corinthians 3 more broadly than that. Essentially, every believer will be tested or evaluated for their life's ministry, for the work that we do for Christ. And it's all to be built on Christ. So as you think about that, you can ask yourselves the question, am I doing this? Am I living for Jesus? Am I pointing to Jesus with the things that I do? Am I faithful to the truth that Jesus taught? Or am I really just living for myself? Am I making it all about me? Well, Paul says in verses 12 to 15, he says, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, if it passes through that fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but it's only through fire. Do you think about standing before Jesus ever and giving an account for your life? I actually believe that's a thought process that we should have semi-regularly. We should think about it because it would influence the decisions that we make day after day. We would wake up in the morning and we would be thinking to ourselves, are, are the decisions that I'm going to make today, are those going to be gold, silver, and precious stone decisions? Or are these decisions that are resulting in wood, hay, and straw? You know what that means? 
It means that every day of your life is not just one mundane day after another, but everything you do truly matters. It's eternal in consequence and weight. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do I make those decisions that will live on into eternity? Well, Paul tells Timothy the way to do that is to fulfill his calling. He's saying, Timothy, look, you're living in God's presence all the time. He sees your life, your day-after-day life, and one day you're going to stand in front of Jesus and give an account for what you do. And if that's the case, then verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teachings. You see, Paul says in this verse that the core of your responsibility and my responsibility and Timothy's responsibility as a Christian is to preach the word. Everything else that follows here is just elaborating on what that is, what that looks like. We have to be faithful to these scriptures that we just looked at last week. We saw that they're God-breathed. And just to reiterate that point, these scriptures tell us the mind of God, the will of God. They define reality for us. We don't even know who we are without these scriptures. We learn through these scriptures that we are both image and dust. On the one end of the spectrum, we are dust. We are inconsequential. We are incredibly small when you consider us compared to the universe. I challenge you sometime to look at the size of the universe. Follow one of those videos that shows you how large the universe is and tell me if you feel big after it. I feel incredibly small, but I'm also image. I'm highly valuable because I was made in his image. Now, how is anyone to know those things without God's word? That's why we have this theological term called revelation. Revelation means something that was previously unknown has been made known. So without revelation, it's like you and I are wandering through the deepest, darkest depths of a cave with no light. Have you ever been in the darkest cave with no light and tried to look at your hand in front of your face? You can't say anything. You can't see anything. That's why Paul is saying time and again, Preach the word. Christian, here's the thing. You don't have anything to say unless it comes from this book. Nothing. You have nothing to offer the world, nothing of value, nothing of consequence. So if you're to live that kind of life, the power of this book comes when we live like it's true. When I allow it to shape my values and, and let it define for me what is right and what is wrong instead of trying to manipulate this and tell it what's right and wrong. When I let it shape my purpose in life. In fact, all of our work is a work of the Word. And as you see that it is a work of the Word, then Paul can elaborate on what that look, work looks like. And he gives us three principles about the work of the Word. The first is he says the work of the Word is always powerful, but it's not always convenient. Be ready in season and out of season. So you need to be ready because the work of the Word is always powerful, but there's a season where it's 
convenient and there's a season where it's not so much. We've been through all of that. I, I need to remind myself of passages like this all the time when I'm struggling and saying, you know, I know I committed to this Thrive group, but my emotions aren't in it right now. I don't think I want to show up this week. Or I made that appointment with that person and we were going to talk about the things of God, but again, I'm just not feeling it right now. Well, here's the thing, church. We can't reserve ministry opportunities only for the times when we feel like it. That's going to lead to a wimpy kind of ministry life. No, what I find is that when I go against the grain of my emotions and I choose to show up anyway, God always shows up. When I'm afraid to tell someone that doesn't know about Jesus the life-giving message of the gospel and I step out in courage to do so, God always steps out with me. Here's another principle of the Scriptures. The work of the Word is dynamic. You know, it involves reproving, rebuking, exhorting. Sometimes when we hear from the Word, it challenges us directly. Other times we hear from the Word and it's an encouragement to us. So there's this broad spectrum of approach. And the reason it's a broad spectrum of approach, it's as dynamic as the human heart is complicated. Have you noticed that about yourself? Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Sometimes I'm on fire for the things of God, and sometimes I'm incredibly cold towards the things of God. So I need an approach that is as dynamic as my heart is complicated. So it can't be on that spectrum and just say, okay, well, I'm just going to only challenge with the word, or I'm only going to encourage with the word. I need it all. So reprove, rebuke, exhort. We also see that the work of the Word requires patience. You see that there? Do these things with complete patience and teaching. Believer, we're in the microwave time culture. I've said it like 50 times now. I'm going to say it again. We expect to say things and then people just to get it. <laughs> right? Son, why didn't you learn that yesterday? I told you one time. Here's the thing about life change and change in general. It often takes us many times of hearing something to change. Just ask Katie that question, right? She tells me things about 20 times, and then it starts getting through the skull, right? And I start getting it. Well, that's so true of ministry. We need to be patient with people just as people had to be patient with us when we were first learning how to walk. But more important than that, we need to trust the work of the Holy Spirit because He's at work and He's moving in their life. You see, we need to keep at this, Paul's saying, time and time again. That's the drumbeat. Keep preaching the Word. Why do we keep preaching the Word? Well, because it's so easy for the believer to fall into a spiritual entropy. That means that we're going to naturally move away from the truth. We need to stay in the Scriptures, read the Scriptures daily. Now listen carefully as I say this, and don't take this too far, but I do want to say this. Yesterday's Word is not always good for today. 
All right? It's not always going to be sufficient for today. Something that I heard 10 years ago isn't always going to give me the courage or the desire or the heart change that I need to be obedient to God today. So if I want to be obedient to God today, I need a word for today. Paul says to us, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and and wander off into myths. Now, as you look at those verses, who do you think Paul's talking to? Is he talking to people that have trusted Jesus or people who have not trusted Jesus? As I look at it, I see that he's talking to believers. Believers who find the content and the demands of the gospel too difficult or challenging, so they look for teachers who soften the demands. John Stott says, they suffer from a peculiar pathological condition called itching ears. And the figure of speech means that you have people that are not looking for the truth of the word. They're looking to be entertained, or they're looking for novel ideas, or they're looking for someone who just keeps things light. Let me ask you a question. What happens when you scratch poison ivy? Go ahead and answer it. It spreads. Does it solve the problem? No. The more I scratch, the more the itch comes on. And so think of it like this. The more you go to someone who just entertains you or brings novel ideas or keeps it light, the more your ears are going to itch. And Paul says here that you will eventually depart from the truth without even realizing that you have. Because you keep going back you keep hearing what's false or not quite true, and the mind is a sponge. We saw that last week, didn't we? So I don't need my ears scratched. I need poison ivy cream. You know, some ministries are built completely on style and nothing to do with substance. Some ministries are pulling the old bait-and-switch scheme. We're going to build all this atmosphere and entertainment and make things light. And then when people come through the doors, we'll switch things up and we'll tell them about Jesus. But here's the problem with the bait and switch scheme. It all becomes bait and no switch. They talk less and less about Jesus and more and more about morals. Which is just pharisaicalism and not gospel. So Paul says, don't do that, Timothy. Verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Alistair Begg, a pastor, was meeting with a number of pastors. He has a very influential ministry, and in a rather reflective way, he quoted that verse, verse 5. He said, you know, I have found that this verse increasingly is an anchor point for all of my life. I wake up on Monday morning and I say to myself, well, what am I going to do now? And then I say, well, I think I'll try to keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, and discharge all the duties of my ministry. 
When I'm lifted up by a little encouragement, he said, and that comes, I say to myself, well, what should I do about that encouragement? Well, the answer is, I'm going to keep my head, I'm going to endure hardship, and so on. He paused and went on. And when the waves beat on me, and I feel like just running to the hills somewhere, what should I do? Well, Alistair, just keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. You see, believer, time is going to pass by quickly with your life. It's like taking a drive in the country and watching the fence posts just tick by one after the other. Weeks become years. Years become decades. And with that time, you might change some, you know. Uh, I've noticed with me over the years, the changes are usually a little more weight, a little less hair, hopefully, God willing, a little more wisdom. But God's call, God's purpose for your life, that doesn't change. Don't run off. Don't get lost with the ear scratchers. Stay with the Word, Paul's saying. Be a person of the Word. Preach the Word. Fulfill the calling of your ministry. And then you'll be faithful. Well, as he's transitioning into his closing words, you get the sense that Paul's massive grip is beginning to loosen upon the baton. You know that point in the relay race where there's this transition that occurs and the runner with the baton links up or meets up with the runner who's about to receive it. And for a couple of seconds, maybe a split second, both hands are on the baton together. Paul's massive grip holding one side, Timothy holding the other. He's about to own it. But before he takes that first stride of independence, Paul wants to share his final thoughts of his life's example. In fact, you can look at these thoughts as aspirations for your life. There's three of them. The first aspiration is you can think, I am offering God everything that I have. Now look at what he says in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now he's talking about the drink offering in the act of worship. You can look at Numbers chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 to get an idea of that ceremony. The purpose of the ceremony was this. The drink offering was to be totally expended, completely poured out as an act of worship to God. And Paul, throughout his ministry, viewed his life like that. Do you want to be serious about the things of God instead of just playing at it? You have to offer him the totality of your life because an impartial offering in God's eyes is no offering at all. So what do you offer him? You offer him your life, your dreams, your ambition, your purpose, your desires, all of it. Now, I know what we think when we, we come to grips with that. We say to ourselves, well, isn't that too much to give? Can't I keep some of the offering for myself? Well, there's this upside-down reality, believer. When you turn the cup over in that 
drop process happens, the pouring out process happens, you find out in that moment that God gives you far more than you could ever give in return. That's why Paul is in prison right now. He's suffering. He knows that his death is looming, and yet he's never felt more alive. The second aspiration is I'm determined to finish well. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, those first two phrases are running metaphors as I look at the Scriptures. If you look at the New English translation, it translates, I have fought the good fight as I have competed well. So this was Paul's mindset. He was competing to the best of his abilities within the rules, always seeking to improve with the mindset that he was going to finish the race. Now, it's interesting as I I think about running. And I will say this, uh, I've never run some of the extreme runs like a marathon or something like that, but when I was younger in my cross-country days, I did do a 15-mile run for practice from time to time. And there's something true about running a grueling race. You don't finish the grueling race that you don't firmly intend to finish at the beginning. You have to predetermine as you start at the starting line. I'm running all the way to the end. No matter what happens in between, I'm going to finish this race. Because if you approach it differently, right? If you show up to that starting line and, you know, you drink a big old Gatorade just before you're starting the race and you think to yourself, you know, I'm like all about the experience of the run and I'm doing this for as long as it feels good. Well, here's the deal. You're stopping after about two miles. Why? Because running is inherently awful. It's horrendous. I'm sorry to all my running friends out there, but you know I'm right. It's terrible. So I just have to say, you know, I'm going to grind through this because there's no way I'm doing this if it's just about a luxury cruise. Here's the thing. No one accidentally or serendipitously finishes the race well. It doesn't just kind of happen. But unlike running, which is inherently awful, Walking with Jesus and passing the baton is inherently the noblest, grandest thing you can do with your life. It's what you were made to do. It's better than winning all the events at the Olympics, having more gold medals than Michael Phelps. It is eternal in consequence like we've been seeing. You know what I find incredible about this race, too, is as you look at the scriptures, every believer has a race to run, and they can finish that race well. In Hebrews 12, too, the author says that we're to run with endurance the race that's set out for us. You know what that means? You don't have to run my race, and I don't have to run your race, that God has a special purpose for your life, a race for you to run. And in addition to that, your race is no less crucial to God's plan and purposes than anyone else's race. So have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had that conversation with God where you said to God, 
I intend to finish well, God. I want to do it. Give me the strength to do it. Again, you're not going to do that by accident. And what we find as we pray that prayer to God is that he gives us the power to do so. In fact, Hebrews 12.2 says the best way to finish well is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. You look to Jesus. You live how Jesus lived. You love how Jesus loved. You honor the truth in the way Jesus honored the truth. When you predetermine to finish the race and you keep your eyes on Jesus as you run, the Bible says, guess what? You will finish and you will finish well. We look at the final aspiration. It's verse 8, and Paul says, essentially, I ran anticipating God's reward. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, in the ancient contests, the athletes, of course, who demonstrated prowess as they ran, received a reward. It was a perishable reward. Um, It would be a crown that was woven out of leaves or ivy or flowers, something like that. But the believer, according to the scriptures, is promised a reward that's imperishable. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. You know what made the difference in Paul's life? He lived like heaven is real. Are you? Are you living like you will be spending eons in eternity on this new earth that God intends to recreate and inhabit with his presence, a place unlike anything you can imagine? Are you living in such a way like everything you do today matters for then? You see, the more that you walk with a desire and a longing for heaven, when you long for heaven well, You live this life well. It changes everything. It changes your perspective. It changes your thought processes. It changes what you're willing to suffer for. Well, in 2016, the qualifying rounds of the Olympics 400, women's 4 by 100 relay race was happening. And in this race, Allison Felix heard the dreaded, sound. She heard the baton drop. She was on the second leg about to pass the baton when she was bumped by another competitor. And within the guidelines of the rules, if someone bumps an athlete and they drop the baton, that doesn't tend to disqualify the person. But they didn't know what the outcome would be. And so, like true sports, they just determined in their mind, we've been given a race and we're just going to keep running the race to completion. Now, initially, the the team was disqualified. But upon repeal, they they noticed that, indeed, the the footage 
showed that she was bumped, and they were given a second chance. It was a surreal moment. They had to compete in a time trial. The time to beat was 42.7 seconds, and that would help them to replace the eighth-seeded Chinese team. So the ladies gathered themselves together, of course. They ran that race with all of their might in their second chance, and they finished that time at a time of 41.77 seconds. What was even more incredible about this beyond the second chance is that those ladies went on after that second chance to win gold. Here's what I've come to realize about this life. Many of us are going to drop this baton. I have. In fact, as I look at Scripture, I only see one who perfectly carried the baton and never dropped it, and that's Jesus. So the question isn't really a matter of, will I drop the baton? You will at some point. The question is, what do you do once you've dropped the baton? So you look at the last verses, uh, we don't have time to read them all today, but there's a list of names that Paul gives to Timothy as positive and negative examples of people who have carried the baton, and many of them have dropped it. Some of them drop it, and then they just go off and do their own thing. But others of them drop it, and they handle the situation much differently. In fact, there's one name that really speaks to me as I see it in this list. Look at verse 11. Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, if you don't know who Mark is, he is John Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was probably a scribe for Peter, translating Peter's thoughts into a gospel. He was also related to Barnabas, and he went with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary tour that we looked at just last week. Well, here's the thing. When things turned tough, Mark turned away on that journey. He left Paul and Barnabas high and dry, and he went back to Jerusalem. In fact, Paul would go on and suffer all of those horrors that we looked at last week in Iconium and Lystra and so on and so forth in Acts 13 and 14. Now, later on, Paul had lost so much confidence in Mark that when Barnabas suggested that they let Mark pick up the baton again and start running with it again. You know what Paul said? No way. Not going to happen. He had his chance, and he lost it. The argument between the two became so heated that Paul and Barnabas separated ministry paths, and if you look at the Scriptures, they never came together again to do ministry. And yet... Now we read that Mark has proven himself as a real runner. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is a great help to me in ministry. Many of us are Mark. And what you need to realize today, Mark, 
is that God is not the God of first chances only. He's the God of second chances and third chances. In fact, as I look at the Scriptures, God's intention is to run with those who are ready and willing to run. So get Mark and bring him to me. Those words give you so much hope, Mark, this morning. What Paul is saying to you through the Word of God is, Mark, pick the baton up again. Mark, don't leave it there on the ground. Build up your courage. Pick up the baton and start running with it. Mark, hold it with a firmer grip this time. And Mark, as you faithfully complete the race, make sure that you pass that baton on to another believer. Mark, you can do this. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer this morning? Lord, as we close down the book of 2 Timothy, we're just here standing in awe of you, the God who is always present, the God who has given us such a crucial task, the gospel ministry. I pray for our church that we would adopt those aspirations of Paul. For the one here that wants to give the totality of their life to the the worship of God, may today be that day. God, I give you everything. For the one who hasn't thought about completing the race, but it's just been kind of going along in the race and wondering, could I complete the race? May they determine within themselves today, I intend to finish well. And Lord, may we all anticipate heaven and may we live like it's real. I cannot wait for that day when Jesus returns. And I pray that when we stand before him face to face, that each one of us will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.